Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. President-elect Donald Trump spent the weekend in Bedminster, New Jersey, about 50 miles West of here with Vice President-elect Mike Pence and a parade of potential presidential picks. Governor Chris Christie, former Governor Mitt Romney, former Mayor Rudy Giuliani, uh, Wilbur Ross, David McCormick of Bridgewater, Jonathan Gray of Blackstone. Uh, And that's where I want to start this morning with Martin Feldstein. He is Baker Professor of Economics at Harvard, President Emeritus of the National Bureau of Economic Research and former Chairman of President Ronald Reagan's Council of Economic uh, Advisors. Great to have you with us here. Good in to the be studio. back. Let's start there. He, he, is, he is talking to, he is weighing whether or not to pick many of these, uh, these men and women. Let's start with the Treasury Secretary in particular. What's he looking for? What makes a, a good Treasury Secretary? Uh, well, I don't know what he's looking yeah. for. The Treasury Secretaries over the decades that I have followed this have been very different. Um, in some cases, they're people who... Uh, understand the politics of how to deal with the Congress, can help the president pass his legislation. In some cases, they are the chief spokesman. That's what Don Regan, who was Treasury Secretary when I worked for Ronald Reagan, he said, I am the president's chief economic spokesman. Mm-hmm. I will explain to the, pres- to the world, to the uh, American public, what it is that we're trying to do. So I think a president can, can seek different kinds of things. I think in the current case... Um, Donald Trump has laid out broad goals, but not details of how he would achieve it. And so I think uh, he needs help on those details, and he needs somebody who can work with the congressional leadership, with uh, Paul Ryan in particular, on on, elect, on passing those those uh, those policies. Yeah, explain what it is we're trying to do. Here we are, two weeks uh, out from the from the election. Do we have a better sense of that from these intervening two weeks? No, I don't think we do. I think people. Uh, Critics of of, uh, of the president-elect have taken his some of the rhetoric in the campaign too literally. Uh, I think he, the key thing is to think about the goals that he's talking about, uh, better jobs, uh, stronger growth, uh, and then how that's to be achieved, that has to be worked out, uh, as I said, with the Congress. You've worked with uh, somebody who was an outsider who came into Washington, albeit he was a, a governor coming to Washington, but... Uh, how, how high is that barrier to entry for somebody who, who bills himself as an outsider to come into Washington and get things done? How difficult is it? You're talking about uh, yeah, Ronald, Ronald Reagan? Reagan yes. Uh, he did it very, very well. Yeah. I mean, he came in and he uh, passed remarkable legislation, and he never had uh, control over both houses of Congress. Mm. And yet we got Social Security legislation, we got tax legislation, we got trade legislation. So it was very impressive. Martin Feldstein with us from Harvard University. Wonderful to meet with him in this time of transition for the nation. It's also wonderful to be back in New York. David Gura, I forgot your Fortnum and Mason smoky gray (laughs) Earl Gray, the smoky Earl Gray. Because I had to battle at Heathrow (laughs) to get family members. Customs confiscated it, yeah. I I came back empty-handed and 
was the height of rude. No, no. Um, we'll have to fix that okay. next day or two. David Gurr and Tom Kane with uh, Martin Feldstein. Help me here with what was almost my chart of the year, which is the decline in productivity. Uh, Sebastian Malaby talks about Alan Greenspan's wonderful observer, observance of good productivity 15 years ago or so. Now we're going the other way. Is it reversible? I think the key thing about the productivity numbers and the growth numbers, and I've been studying this in some detail recently, is that the official numbers are just wrong. They just don't tell us So you us believe in the really miscounting? Happened. I don't believe in the miscounting as an explanation of the recent slowdown. I don't know why the numbers were high for a few years, they're low again, back to where they were in the past. What I do know is that the official way in which we measure real output and therefore productivity understates the growth in this economy because the official numbers don't take into account new products mm. and the official numbers don't take into account in a sensible way and product improvements. Is our hedonic pricing changed? This technology revolution folded into how we value things. Do we know how to do that? So the hedonic uh, technique, the use of statistical regressions to value products. An iPhone. It, it, well, I'll come back to the iPhone. <laughs> but, I mean, to value products like the, the, the laptop computer is a very small part of what the government does. So it's an improvement. But there's still a big gap for most products, and there's nothing for the impact on, on the value mm -hmm. created by new pharmaceutical <clears throat> how products. And okay, other how do you respond, Professor, then, to a Trump supporter in a battleground state that says, I don't care about my kid's iPhone, I need a real job like we used to have? Uh, those real jobs are going away. Uh, we are seeing, we are seeing a, a, uh, a change over the decades in the nature of, of employment in the United States. Manufacturing production jobs are way under 10% of the labor force. I had a, a contentious, let's say, interview with Wilbur Ross on this point. He, he, he disputes that. He thinks that we could see a resurgence of, of manufacturing here uh, in the U.S., not necessarily high-tech manufacturing. Any credence to that? Is, is there any, any sense that that's true? You could have some. You sure. know, if you went from, I don't know what the current number is, 7% to 10% of the labor force, that would be a 50% increase, but it would still be a very right. small number. <laughs> How do you think the, the Federal Reserve at this point regards the, the labor market? We talk a lot about whether or not we're at full employment here, but, but when they meet well, next month uh, in the Eccles, but yeah. There are different voices, of course, on the Open Market Committee, uh, but uh, it's hard to uh, believe that we are in essentially at full employment. Uh, yes, there's been a decline in labor force participation rates of a percentage point or two, uh, some of that is because of the aging of the population, uh, but basically we are at full employment, and that's why wages are rising more rapidly, and that's why um, pr uh, prices, inflation, is beginning to rise. Let's use that as the, the backdrop here to talk about this uh, fiscal stimulus, this infrastructure plan that is being bandied about now in, in, in Washington. Do, do you think that the, the horse is fall, far enough out of the barn here that, that the conversation over whether or not to do it is done, or is there, is there still going to be a conversation about whether now is the time to have this kind of spending? Well, I think there should be a conversation about whether now is the time, because now is not the time. 
to do it. It would be uh, fiscal spending done right can help to boost the economy when we're in a recession, but we're certainly not in a recession now, so we don't need it from a demand point of view. we don't have sp- the plans on the table to do these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Trump has said that he wants to do it with private money, so we don't have a plan for how we're going to make that happen. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's it's way off right. in speculative uh, land. Very quickly here, uh, Mr. Summers, Professor Harvard, President Harvard, suggests there is stagnation of a secular type. I would suggest Martin Feldstein pushes against your esteemed colleague. Over coffee in the economics so, department. <laughs> so, so Larry and I uh, go back a long way. And a few years ago, when the unemployment rate in the U.S. was around 7%, was coming down very slowly, I said, well, you know, maybe Larry's right, and maybe we have a, a shortage of demand, and we need to do some more spending, and infrastructure might be a way of doing it and there may be plenty of time to get there. But now we're at full employment, and so I don't see the case Mm -hmm. for doing this. To the extent that that we do infrastructure, it's at the state and local Mm -hmm. level. We are going to digress right now. Martin Feldstein with us, who has profoundly changed academics in America, and particularly economic academics. And Professor David Gurr and I um, came out of our own unique uh, economic studies And one thing we know is there was a tradition, and the tradition has basically been shattered for a lot of different reasons. You're going to lecture in two weeks at your Harvard University to a set of um, upperclassmen, undergraduate students, but people with a little bit of experience. When you go out there in front of the chalkboard, is Trump economics in the textbooks, or are you going to be lecturing on a whole new America? No, there isn't a Trump economics. There's a Trump set of goals, uh, strengthen growth, um, improve the quality of jobs, but there isn't a plan, there isn't a, a, a path for getting there. So what they've learned in my class uh, is about traditional right. economics, <clears throat> taxes, government spending, budget control, and the like. Every textbook is different, whether it's Stanley Fisher and Rudy Dornbush, whether it's Blanchard. Rick Mishkin at Columbia has a back third of his textbook is on policy. Can we affect policies to meet the campaign promises of Mr. Trump? More jobs for people that have been looking for him for a lifetime. Uh, Policies can uh, deliver the kinds of goals that he talked about, but it's not more jobs. We are essentially at full employment, so it's quality of jobs. It's uh, the growth of productivity. Those are the kinds of things that good policies should be able to deliver and deliver without creating uh, large budget deficits. Have we, how about growth, uh, the, the 4% growth target he's, he's set out there? In any chance of that, of that happening? It's a layup. You know, <laughs> who knows? But I, what I do know oh, is... Oh, come on! <laughs> you think there's a... <laughs> if anyone... You, you think there's a fan distribution that includes 4% real GDP growth? Not the way we measure Thank it. Thank you. Okay, Not the continue. way we measure it today. So, but as I was saying to you earlier on this program, uh, I think the way the government measures uh, real GDP growth just gets it wrong. Uh, so when it comes to product improvements, there's no attempt to... Uh, 
say how much is uh, this year's model worth to the consumer relative to last year's. And when new products come along, there's no attempt to put into the calculations the value to the consumer of those new products. So we're understating real economic growth. So when we talk about 2% growth over the last bunch of years, that's an understatement of what's really happening. And it's unfortunate because it leads people to think that somehow the economy is in terrible shape when, in fact, we're doing better than that. A lot of talk of talk of tax reform, corporate tax reform, personal tax reform, uh, repatriation holiday for, for corporate mm-hmm. profits overseas. Does something like that make sense to you, offering well, a, I say, 10% rate here to bring profits yeah, back so to the U.S.? So it's not a, a holiday. It's yeah. not a temporary thing. I think that the mistake that was made in the previous time when there was a repatriation holiday yeah. was to make it a one-shot thing and to provide no incentives for the companies that brought money back to invest it in plant and equipment. So I think the thing to do now is to permanently lower our corporate tax rate. The British are talking about 17 percent. We're at 35 percent. And also to join the rest of the world with a so-called territorial tax system in which we tax profits that come back from abroad at a low rate so we don't have two-plus trillion dollars sitting outside the United States when those funds could be invested here. We talk about the shovel readiness of of infrastructure projects. Is there a shovel-ready tax plan here ready to go? Uh, Not in great detail, but overall, yes. I would say that the Ways and Means Committee and the House Republicans have been working on detailed tax rules which I think would be a very good starting point for uh, what uh, the new president will want to do. And you see a lot of, 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 uh, of points of agreement between the, the White House, the, the next White House, and, and Paul Ryan, Speaker Ryan? Uh, it's hard to know. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Trump has met with Ryan uh, at an earlier stage during the campaign. He said he liked the ideas that the House Republicans have put together, but I don't think he has signed off on any of mm. these details. Martin Feldstein, thank you so much. Baker, professor, Harvard uh, University. Great time to catch up here. Ex- I, don't know, I, I don't know how many days it is. 60 days to the inauguration? That sounds about right. Think. Yeah, we'll round up. Should we, have a sur- <laughs> we, should, we should have a surveillance transition team. Yeah, exactly. And maybe an inaugural <laughs> ball. As well. <clears throat> yeah, we should have a surveillance <laughs> inaugural ball. Down at the local watering hole. Yeah. Well, I want to make 3.6%. I can do that with a Polish tenure. I don't know if that's a deal. Pablo Goldberg with us uh, right now with BlackRock. Um, I mentioned hockey stick. We've seen hockey stick moves, Pablo, in yields. Do you load the boat on this Monday with EM debt, or do you have to wait for further carnage? No, neither of the two, I would say. I think that um, it is a time of wait and see a little bit of what's happening with the news from the U.S. Obviously, uh, there's been uh, a nice retracement uh, in EMD, but a lot has been repriced. Um, I I think that there's two variables here to watch. The first one is duration, right? And duration has been driving a sell-off in emerging markets, but also a sell-off in other fixed income instruments. And the other one is the policy uncertainty that we have coming out of Washington, because for emerging markets, that can mean a lot. I mean, a new sort of trade policy coming from from Washington uh, for some countries in emerging market could be important headwind. So uh, we are in a little bit in a wait and see mode, but we're not as uh, I would say as uh, as 
defensive as we were a week ago. We had the, the big trade summit in Lima, Peru uh, over the weekend. President Obama was there. There was a meeting of him along with other TPP leaders, as, as they were called. Uh, I, I imagine it was a quiet and awkward meeting for, for the outgoing president of the United States who placed so much of a bet on the, the passage of that, that trade legislation. What's your sense here of, of what happens with trade? We've certainly heard Donald Trump's rhetoric about trade uh, on the campaign trail. Is there a danger here that we are left out like uh, the lone tumbleweed on the prairie rolling along on our own here? But I, I think the risk is, I mean, and, and, and the risk is how much do you think that Trump is going to be the same Trump that we had in the campaign, right? I mean, if, if it's going to be 45 percent uh, import tariffs from China, if it's going to be, um, you know, reneging in NAFTA, that is a whole different story that a president that maybe will try to cut some deals in some places where maybe the U.S. got the short end of the stick in trade, but it will be way more case by case, maybe some anti-dumping, maybe some issues about the environment, uh, but not a generalized change of the rules of the game in trade. Uh, so we're still trying to figure out what are we getting. And, and this means very different things for places like Mexico, uh, like China. But two things are important to, uh, to have in mind. The first one that there's a lot of investment of U.S. companies already established in Mexico. So just bringing that back would be a problem. And also that there's a lot of investment in U.S. companies in China. So if all of a sudden all those investments will be exported into the U.S. at a total yeah. different tariff, there will be an impact in the U.S. as well. Do you find yield or do you have to hedge the dollar movement? Part of the game, folks, it's a two-part analysis. What do you do with EM? What do you do with a given country, et cetera? And the other thing is then what do you do about the dollar? Is the dollar the elephant in your room this morning, Pablo Goldberg? I think that is an excellent question. Uh, we have been hedging duration uh, for a while already, uh, and then we move into hedging now more uh, a little bit the dollars, the dollar story. Uh, uh, EM can work okay with the kind of yields that we think we're going to get, but if the dollar continues to have a, ver- a significant strength, local markets in emerging markets will have a very important headwind, and you need to hedge um, the dollar. These are two different things: uh, the, the the duration risk. And the dollar risk. And here, emerging market has two different asset classes. You have the local markets, and you have the dollar, uh, the dollar mm-hmm. bonds. With, with, with the dollar bonds, you need to be careful more about duration. With local markets, you need to be careful more about right. the dollar. So right okay. now, we're more based into the hard currency because of that. And that's, that's great, folks. A primer there on the two kinds of bonds in any given uh, nation. We don't have this problem in the United States. So, so help me with Turkey. I was taught that Turkey is maybe the ultimate two-currency bond market. Mm. What does BlackRock do in Turkey now to make money 12 months out? Well, I think in Turkey you have, as you say, two stories. And the story about Turkey is that uh, these two stories are somewhat somewhat linked because the non-financial corporate sector in Turkey, these are your producers of goods, not the banks, are actually quite indebted. Uh, in dollars. So when the currency move, their ability to pay also gets somewhat hurt. So the two markets in Turkey in particular are way more linked than in places like, say, Brazil. So what do we do in Turkey? We're actually quite defensive in Turkey. We're quite defensive in hard currency. Uh, We are defensive in the currency exposure. We're defensive on the rates exposure. Uh, So this is one of the places where we particularly used to hedge the environment that we currently have, that is that of uh, duration risks and uh, weaker, uh, stronger dollar and weaker currencies domestically. I look at the, the weakness of the Mexican peso at 2048 now. 
slightly stronger than it was uh, for most of last week. But is there opportunity in Mexico right now when you have the, the peso at that level? Well, the, the issue with Mexico right now is that you don't know which economy you're getting in yeah. the future. And, uh, you know, when, when you, if you think about uh, the previous state of the world, right, when we were not considering the possibility of the end of NAFTA, if you compare to where the peso is today to that, there's a 15 to 20 percent premium now in the Mexican peso. But you don't know that going forward, you get an environment where uh, you have a wall and you don't have uh, FDI because you have uh, no NAFTA or you have a different situation. So we've been doing a lot of work into trying to put numbers behind it. But until you get more certainty of where we're going, it's hard to put uh, a number on the peso. So particularly in Mexico, is more of a wait-and-see situation right now. A wait-and-see situation. Is, is the uncertainty entirely stemming from what's going to happen or may happen in Washington, or, or is this a story about the Mexican economy as well? It's a combination of the two, and that's a great point, because we are overlapping policy uncertainty in the U.S. with policy uncertainty with Mexico. Uh, we have an election in Mexico in 2018. Uh, the current ruling party does not have... Uh, too much popularity at this point, and we might get uh, potentially the ascendance of a less market-friendly candidate in 2018. So if we have a, a situation that is very against Mexico from right. the U.S., it might likely lead to a situation that is a little bit against the U.S. Yeah. and Mexico. So you get these two superposing uh, risks. And um, the Mexican peso today might be very different if we have, let's say, a soft right. Trump or we have a harsher Trump, more in line with what he was saying in the campaign. Is is Italy an emerging market? Is Pablo Goldberg going to invest or study or think about Italy a year out? Well, if that is the case, if, if, if Italy was to become uh, an emerging market, then I think that we will have other troubles because this will be uh, a world where um, where the developed markets are uh, under significant amount of stress. Um, so to answer your question, short, no, I don't think that Italy is an, invest, an, invest, an emerging mm -hmm. market. Uh, I think in some cases, Greece has started to be studied, particularly on the equity side, by emerging market investors. But I think that Italy is far away from the situation where Greece was. Pablo Goldberg, he had eight reasons to not come on today with BlackRock, of course, uh, doing real money work with emerging market debt as well. Pablo, I need a clinic right now on a siren call of 50, 60, and 70-year bonds. They may be emerging market, but usually they're more developed countries. The latest love note, folks, is from Austria, a bond of 2086, You've enjoyed giving up nine years coupon in the latest hockey stick move. Pablo, help me here. Do I want to buy a 50-year or a 70-year bond? Well, I think it's very difficult to get so out there um, at the current, um, you know, the current dynamics of duration, right? I mean, um, if there's an area of the curve that is le least sponsored by, by central bank, that is a very, very, very long end. Uh, we have... Uh, the Japanese 
um, just having put an order to unlimited buying in the three to five year. They have a targeted the 10 year. We have ECB buying uh, across the curve. Uh, just going all the way out there into the 50, 100 year, that's where you have least sponsorship from, from central banks. So if there's any kind of reflation trade happening in the market, that's where you're going to feel it the most. So um, at this moment, at least for us, and this is not that much of an emerging market story because there's very little emerging market yeah, supply I, I understand. so far out. Yeah. Um, but I think that this is, you know, this is the area where you carry probably uh, the highest risks, right, in terms of duration. Pablo, in a few minutes, we're going to talk to Fadel Gate of, of Oppenheimer, energy analyst at Oppenheimer, about what's happening with oil. Let me ask you, though, to what extent the emerging market story right now is an oil story, is an energy story? But oil is a very important part. I mean, I will talk about oil commodities, you know, not only oil. It's a very important part of the emerging market, fundamental construct. Uh, and obviously, in last January, when we have oil below 30, uh, emerging markets are suffering with a rebound um, of oil. Emerging market did well. Where we are right now is more of a range trading, somewhere between whatever, 45 and 50. Uh, so the next meeting of OPEC uh, would be important for, uh, for the emerging markets. Uh, any kind of sense that uh, suppliers are putting together some kind of agreement to support the oil price uh, will be will be good news. Uh, on the other hand, you know that um, everything that might come from energy policy in the U.S. indicates that there's going to be more facilities for the shale producers to supply. Uh, that means that at the same time, we are a little bit cupping the upset of oil prices going forward as very quickly these suppliers can come to the market and, 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 and generate uh, uh, you know, more production. Um, all in all, I think that oil, you know, around 50 with lower volatility is good news for emerging markets, but it's not going to be a massive driver of performance going forward. How about uh, in, the, in the metal space? We've, we've seen uh, copper come down a little bit here, but when you look at emerging markets and metals, what are you seeing? Well, there is that uh, when you look at other things except oil, when you look at, at, at copper, when you look at iron ore, uh, we look at some of the the um, uh, industrial materials, that's where uh, the China story uh, starts to play and kick in because China is the biggest buyer uh, in this market. So if you want to understand where Chinese growth and property is going, you need to look at these assets. This is great for other types of countries, the Chile, the Peru, uh, the Brazils of the world, uh, not necessarily the oil producers. And that, and, that, and that dichotomy is allowing us to generate alpha by doing relative value. Uh, between some of these countries. Uh, so I think that if you're looking for uh, a label for emerging market going forward, it's about, it's about selectivity. It's about yeah. alpha. It's not the beta market that we have in the first nine months of the year. Pablo, thank you so much. Pablo Goldberg, an update from BlackRock on beta and alpha and selection of emerging markets. Usually uh, easier, easier said than done. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Uh, Diane Swank with his DS Economics. Uh, 
Diane, thank you so much for those Cubs tickets during the World Series. <laughs> we kept, hey, wait, we kept waiting. It, right? you one did. of the few predictions last time you said It's the only one you've gotten right in 10 oh. years. <laughs> 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 Diane, um, some of us it are... It was a long stop. Yeah, I yeah. lost my voice for two days. So it was very good. Um, some of us get lucky and are at a point where history is made. You were outside the White House as Mr. Trump met with Mr. Obama. What was it like standing outside this symbol of the nation as the two of them met? Well, the the whole trip was a bit surreal because I was meeting with people across the aisle and economists um, in off-the-record meetings for two days and um, diplomats, the whole nine yards. And, you know, it was a circus. Um, most important thing, that was just serendipity. I happened to be there um, going by there, going to another meeting. But the more important issue was coming back from Washington and the whole kumbaya that the financial markets sort of felt in the wake of the election of, you know, a sweep, which was a surprise sweep by Republicans, mm-hmm. was, you know, the sense of unity, that maybe we finally have some unity in government that can move forward. And in Washington, I was getting just the opposite. Not only are Democrats yeah. each other, which we know, but the Republicans are angry at each other. And you're seeing that sort of seep up as well. And that's, uh-huh. um, you know, a really important issue in terms of policy going forward if there's not quite the unity people think. You do great granular economics. I want to get to the granular question, which Martin Feldstein was quite adamant about today. At some point, the market vigilantes are going to step in. Are we beginning to see that now, or is that something that awaits next year? Well, we are seeing it certainly in the bond market. I think the bond market was already um, overbought, and we're seeing the move up in bond yields that I think was poised to occur anyways. That said, I think there's a larger issue than just the bond market, and what I would caution against, and it's something that Carmen Reinhart has made a counter um, argument about, is that we may not see the vigilance that we want to see in terms of if there were a large, well, there is going to be a large expansion in the deficit and the debt, in, in particular in the debt, in the debt-to-GDP ratio, in the years to come if we don't see fiscal reforms that sort of deal with both our short-term and long-term issues. And that's something that, um, even though it's occurring, it's occurring a backdrop drop of more global debt than we've ever had. And so one of the caps on U.S. interest rates could be that it's that much worse than other developed economies. And something that, that's something else that Marty Feldstein, Feldstein said to us here a few moments ago is this is not the time for, for the kind of stimulus package that's being proposed right now. Do you agree with him on, on that point? The, the conversation here now is about composition and size. He's suggesting we shouldn't even be having the composition at the conversation at this point. Well, I think we should be having a productive conversation about infrastructure. This is a t- this is something I think Stan Fisher made the point of today. Um, Janet Yellen, incident, you know, it was interesting, sort of backed off a little bit and said, you know, at full employment, do you really want to be doing this? I think the real issue is if we have, we do need something on infrastructure that helps to raise productivity growth. I do believe that, but it needs to be done within the context of long-term fiscal sustainability. No one's on that third rail of entitlement and discussing that. In fact, both parties have promised more benefits to um, older workers, and not just existing older workers, older workers going forward. And this is where I, I find the really tough stuff is that, you know, back in 2010 when we had that bipartisan fiscal reduction, sort of fiscal sustainability package, the Simpson-Bowles package, which I did, you know, participate in meetings on, that was about, you know, having 28-year-olds maybe work to the age of 
68, mm-hmm. and that was considered outrageous. I mean, these people made a live to 130. It wasn't taking benefits away from existing people today, even those about to retire. And I think not being able to have a grown-up conversation about long-term mm-hmm. fiscal sustainability right. is a real issue. Dan, let me get one more uh, question in too short today uh, with you. Help me with dollar dynamics. Daryl Meyer's coming up with HSBC, and they've got an outlier weak, weak sterling uh, call. Are we beginning to see a brutal move in the dollar, and is that the adjustment that Mr. Trump will have to pay attention to? It is a big adjustment, and the question is, again, you know, what happens to um, the ECB? It looks like now they're not going to begin the tapering or talk about tapering in December, so that will keep more pressure on the dollar moving more towards unity with the euro, as a matter of fact. Um, and so I do think that with the movements we are seeing are dramatic. What is important is something that Leo Brainerd has brought up, and that is even small movements in interest rates have outsized impacts on the dollar. And it's not just the, you know, the sterling, the euro, and the development economies, it's the developing economies, and they're on an enormous amount of stress. And this is the same time that China's already seen a massive outflow, another massive outflow of capital, and that's putting pressure on their mm. currency. And it's not just big elections, it's many factors combined. Diane Swank, thank you so much. DS Economics this morning, too, too, too quick a meeting. We'll have to do something longer with her. Rachel Worspan, we're in Heathrow. We're at David. We're at that caviar bar just before the train tracks over to Terminal Five. I've seen it. I haven't been. So. You know, we were on our fifth plate of whatever it was, and the bubbly was being poured. I said, "Get Daryl Meyer. Just get do anything. Get Daryl Meyer." Joining us now from HSBC, Daryl Meyer. Daryl, there's a trenchant sentence in your new post-Trump report where you continue sterling at 110. Why doesn't Donald Trump affect? Pound sterling. I think what what Donald Trump has done is give us the second example of a currency that flips from being a cyclical story determined by our central bank to one that's determined by our politicians. So in a way, for us, it just reaffirmed one ten. Look, I guess we could have been we could have been cheeky yeah. and moved a little bit lower, but what was the point, Frank? We we're already the most bearish on the street. I think yeah. it just made us more confident if anything that and we're right. David's got eight questions. Let me just get in here quickly. <laughs> Emerging markets. I mean, I hate this word route. But we are getting rowdy in emerging markets. What's the tension there? Yeah, they, they've they, been hit pretty they, hard. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting here is they've been hit pretty hard at a time when I say the rest of the currency market is just fixating on the good bit of the Trump story, which is fiscal stimulus, reflation. We haven't really ventured down the protectionist route, the anti-immigration route, all of these angles, which are potentially even more damaging for EM. So that's, that's the concern. You know, people have asked, has there been an overshoot? I'd say, well... We're only beginning to digest this Trump story. We're not getting the clarity yet. So in a way, still vulnerable, I would argue. You're right that politics can be even more unpredictable than, than financial markets. When you look at currencies around the world, which, which are the currencies now not being driven by politics? It seems like such an overarching, overwhelming political list. story. Yeah. It's a short list, and, and it's distressing because currency strategists generally hate forecasting economics, but we do it and we've been doing it. But we particularly hate forecasting politics, um, it, and it makes it a lot less transparent about about how you arrive at a number. Uh, which ones aren't 
Uh, do you know I'm really struggling to come uh -huh. up with any? I'm really struggling. I mean, maybe the Scandies, maybe Aussie, but even there, you know, even there, you can uh, come uh, up with your political excuse angle. Excuse me, David. Scandies, Scandies is talk for Stockholm and Oslo. <laughs> Just that the FX people talk like that. No, we Scandies. do. We, we like our jargon. We like our jargon. <laughs> Tell me what's been going on with uh, with the Chinese currency. We see it slightly stronger today at six eighty nine twenty three right now, but we saw it plumbing some real lows here over the last week or so. Yeah, and I think. It, it, it's always against what? I mean, yeah. the reality is it's weaker against a much stronger dollar. Um, but if we look at the basket, that's not the case. And But look, this is the way the market behaves. The Chinese authorities would love us all to look at the basket every morning we come into work, but we don't. We look right. at dollar renminbi. So I think in a way to interpret it is there's been... Uh, you know, an appropriate degree of, of weakening of the currency against a stronger dollar, but not one that I think points to any loss of control or any capital flight at this kind of angle that I know the markets would love to find. It's just simply not there because they've been able to maintain this relatively stable basket. How do you begin to forecast uh, what might happen with trade policy vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the Chinese currency, for example? Uh, could there be tariffs? Could there not be tariffs? What's, uh, what are you doing at this point to sort of forecast you're, out? You're doing ifs and buts and maybes. Yeah. Um, and, and that's all you can do. I mean, I remember the, the glory days, the beginning of the internet, where you download a picture and it would take about five minutes to crystallize and it'd be all grainy at the beginning and then super it's an high exciting moment the end. when it happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I still feel we're in the grainy pit, bit of that story. Um, so you do, you, you make judgments on, well, what if you know, the, the tariff structure jumps up and what does it do to import inflation? All these kind of elements. But you would say the early signs are at least encouraging in, in terms of you know, Trump's initial phone conversation with President Z. This indication was that it was there was mutual respect. Let's see if that sure. that's sustained. I want to go back to EM. How do I make money? I, I'm fascinated by it's the end of the year. Everybody's been blown up. Elf has drifted out the door. The bonuses are evaporating. So I got to make alpha in EM. What's the most intelligent way to do that? I still think Max is, is is front and center on that one, Tom. I mean, um, it's it's actually done okay. Uh, yeah. I think it was the best performing currency oh, it's last week. Be. And way, you know. way okay, you know, versus EM of the last 10 right. days. So that's where I think the vulnerability is because, you know, as I, as I, as I mentioned, there is, seems to be this fascination just on the, the good bit. On the bit. wall. On the good yeah. bit. Yeah. No, on, on, on the fiscal stimulus, on the refresh. <clears throat> right. If we begin to worry about the wall, about immigration, about protectionist policy, it about trade... It reverses and it's peso exactly, weaker. Exactly. Dollars that. stronger. So for me, into the end of the year, that's the vulnerability. Okay, just as that as one example... When does a weak currency have a wealth effect on a nation, and particularly the elites of that nation? It can be Turkey. It can be – we've talked a lot about the Philippines this morning. But in Mexico, 18, 19, 20, doom and gloom, debate dynamics and all that, what's your target, 24? We've got 24 end of next 24. year. 24. When does it click in and affect a nation as a whole? Well, it can affect it pretty quickly, to be honest. I mean, I've got three standard deviations, which is like 22.5. Right. The so language changes. It can affect it pretty quickly. And that's why you, you see policymakers trying to actually mitigate the pace. You know, we saw are we the, at that, the interest rate well, well hike Well said, David. Are, are we at that point right now? Yeah. We saw a 50 basis point hike from the central bank. Yeah. Um, and and I, I guess we'll get more of the same. I think the, there's a readiness to go again before the end of this year. You're just trying to control, I think the pace of the move rather than necessarily reverse the direction in a lasting way. Janet Yellen testified last week. Uh, we have minutes coming out this week. We have uh, the next Fed meeting in, in mid-December. How much cognizance uh, do you think the Fed has of the, the strength of the dollar right now? Well, look, it's, it's been a, a core part of their 
previously dovish narrative. It yeah. was the strength of the dollar has kept down import inflation. It means we haven't had to raise mm-hmm. rates in the way we would otherwise have had to done so. So they on their metrics, they say a 4% move in the dollar is like a 25 basis point hike. I mean, we, we've done a hike. The market has hiked, uh, which is remarkable. And, you know, but obviously it's still depends what do we actually get do we get the stimulus does he get it through congress and does the fed respond i suspect they'll become reactive rather than proactive because they have to wait to see what we get on fiscal policy what's your sense of how long a digestive process this is going to going to be in other words in the near term what are you listening for that could give you some better indication of of that well i guess what we're doing at the moment is looking for the the cabinet looking for the personalities he picks to try and drive his 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 politics that's the first thing and then you know post end of january let's see what he actually delivers i suspect there's going to be a bit of acid reflux along the way in this digestion <laughs> process but um i won't name any any medicine in case we're branding but i you know that look it, it is going to be hard for marks digest because we've never seen how, this before how do you respond to the bank of international settlements paper of last week that strong dollar folds into a challenged global financial system do you buy that idea well, look, for the U.S., a strong dollar is a, is a tightening of financial conditions. I guess if it gets particularly strong, it'll resurrect. Do you remember those stories we had at the beginning of this year about EM, foreign currency debt? All the usual suspects will get rolled out again. Um, so I think the perception is when you get a, a swift move and a stronger dollar move, that it can be destabilizing because it does have that adverse mm. impact on those who hold dollar debt. Daryl Meyer with us, HSBC. And, of course, the HSBC call has been... I'm going, to, I'm going to say with respect an outlier call, a lot of people extrapolating to 120 and even migrating down to 115. But HSBC has made clear the trend is your friend and the trend is to 110 in 2017, which is, uh, I mean, I don't think Dar has spoken to the prime minister since he made that <laughs> call. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.